chapter 1 this morning, Acts chapter 1, thank you to the musicians and thank you to all those who made it possible for us to observe the Lord's Supper in a very unique way uh, this morning. It's great to do that. We have so many folks who've done so many things over the last number of months. We appreciate that, whether it's folks up in AV, custodial doing extra, ushers uh, coming in extra, so many people, and uh, we're, we're thankful for that. And today was just another uh, example of that. So uh, thanks to, to all those. Acts chapter 1, uh, we return to, uh, to Acts as we started last Sunday, and we're looking for the next few months at Acts 1 through 12, and we're uh, noticing God's next big thing. God has been seeking to redeem the world, working to redeem the world, uh, for millennia, and the book of Acts takes us into the phase that we're in, and that is the phase of the church. And we're going to look at chapter 1 this morning, and I'm going to begin reading that in a little bit. We are coming to the end of summer, and, and for most of us, it's the end of vacation season. And I want to take us back to vacation just for a moment. I want to take us actually back to before vacation started. I don't know how you are about packing for vacation, but it is for me the least favorite part of vacation. Um, Packing the vehicle is the most stressful. Uh, I see some smiles and some nods, some glances, so I I guess I'm not alone. Um, My idea of vacation is to throw everything into my suitcase and my family to throw everything in their suitcases and for me, we got a family of seven. So for me to throw about four bags in the back of the van and we go off. Boy, did I come in for a rude awakening when I was married. Not because my wife has a lot of stuff, but because I found out the reality is that, that well, we had kids. And so there was like my suitcase, her suitcase, the kid's suitcase, child's suitcase, Haywood's suitcase. I'll give him a name. He's a person. And then there was a pack and play. And I can't remember everything else. It's a blocked out memory. It's a blocked out memory. My wife could probably tell you. She's incredible at packing a car. I am simply the muscle who brings out the multitude of suitcases and containers and packages. And I used to try and pack the car because I was the man and I know how to pack stuff. But my mental block at packing too much stuff prevented me from effectively getting everything in the van so my wife would repack it to her credit and and she would tetris the thing and and i finally said hun you're better i'll bring it down i'll let you put it in she's trained me well i can now pack the van with in my mind way too much stuff one time one time We literally had the van so packed up. We had bicycles in between seats. We had groceries everywhere. This is the night before. I mean, not the perishables, obviously. We had everything. And I'm like, hun, where are the kids going to sit? There was room for them to sit, but literally there was stuff between kids in seats. And she had it all. Every nook and cranny was effective. And we needed nearly all the stuff that we took. I say all that to talk about the preparation that goes into this week of vacation that you're looking for. And preparation is what we're looking at in Acts chapter 1. It's, it's preparation for God's next big thing. Rob talked about Pentecost 
the, the, the coming of the Spirit and the formation of the church. That's in, that is in Acts chapter 2. But in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives some specific commands and some events take place in preparation for this. And so I want us to think today about this. Prepare for the advance of the church. This is what Jesus told his disciples, and this is what they did. They were preparing for the advance of the church. And to do that, incidentally enough, he didn't want them to go immediately, but he wanted them to stay. Now, as we look at this this morning, we have to recognize, as we looked at last week, that Acts is transitional. So not everything that you see occurring in Acts chapter 1 is a command for you and me. Some things are, and some things aren't. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But uh, this is uh, good for us to look at, to see how God worked in other people's lives, and we will certainly find some things that are quite relevant for us. So as he told them to prepare, the first thing that they did in verses 1 through 11 is they prepared by staying for the Spirit. They prepared by staying for the Spirit. Let's just read verses 1 through 5 to begin with. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, Jesus being quoted now, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You and I know Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 28, go and make disciples, but, but before that, or concurrent with that, he said, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. So they are preparing by staying to wait for the Spirit. And what we find first in these five verses is that the Spirit comes from the resurrected Christ. Which may in and of itself not seem incredibly earth-shattering, but the way that the book of Acts points us to Jesus is something we need to note. Continually in the book of Acts, particularly in these first few chapters, we're going to to be pointed to the resurrected Jesus. There's nothing wrong at all with us having observed the Lord's Supper this morning and having remembered the crucified Jesus. But in Acts, we are continually pointed to the resurrected Jesus because here's why. Um resurrected people are few and far between. In fact, in the history of all humanity, billions of people, there is only one resurrected person who lives to this day. Now, you and I are not surprised by that because for years and decades, we've heard that Jesus rose from the dead. But if you and I lived at the time of the apostles, how would we think about the resurrection of people from the dead? Can we put ourselves back in their shoes for a minute? Can, can, we, go, can we go to a cemetery where we have a loved one 
who is, is buried or an urn is there with their ashes respectfully and repose. Can we go to a cemetery and instead of just looking at ground, what if that person came out of the ground and talked with you? You would, you would be feeling a mixture of emotions, amazement, happiness, freaked out, because it's not normal for dead people to come back to life. The miracle of Jesus' resurrection is easily become for us commonplace, but if we go back to what really occurred there, we're talking about a miracle. And what that miracle did is it stamped Jesus with the approval of his Father in heaven, and it proclaimed to the world that Jesus was the King of the world. In Hebrew, it was Mashiach, the Messiah. He is the Christ. The resurrection is what gives to us as believers today the possibility of new life, and it is what cemented Jesus as King of the world. And what he does as king is he leaves us, not a part of himself, but he leaves us another mysterious member of the Godhead, and that is the Trinity. And he says that I'm going to give you this spirit. Now, Jesus could give them the spirit because Jesus had the spirit. And here's how important the Holy Spirit is for you and me. You and I need the Holy Spirit because Jesus had the Holy Spirit. Let's look at these verses from the book of Luke. In Luke 3, it says, When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. When Jesus was baptized, God um, um, physically demonstrated that the Spirit was in Jesus by having this dove come on him and the Spirit come on him. And, and what does that Spirit do for Jesus? We keep reading in Luke And we see that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit is in Jesus, and we know this famous cage match between Jesus and the devil. And Jesus resists temptation three times, making himself the better Adam, proving for us his his invincibility against sin, and the Holy Spirit is a part of that. Now, did Jesus need the Holy Spirit to resist temptation? We're getting into questions I can't answer. We're getting into the mystery of the Trinity there, but let's just remember this. Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, so you and I definitely need him too. And we keep reading the book of Luke. It says that after the temptation, he comes into a a, a synagogue in Nazareth, uh, excuse me, Capernaum, comes into a synagogue in Capernaum, and he gets up and he opens the scroll there in the synagogue to the part in Isaiah that says this, Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Jesus gives the promises to give the Holy Spirit to his people because he, the resurrected Christ, has the Spirit and lived by the Spirit himself as he accomplished his own ministry. And so he extends it to us. Now we talked about this resurrected Christ. It says to us in verse 2 
uh, in verse 3, it says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Jesus was resurrected, and this is not something that people at that time took lightly or on face value. There was factual proof for this resurrected Christ. It says here, very simply, that he proved himself by many proofs. I'd like to give you a few of those. As we read in this passage, uh, we see that he did this over the course of 40 days. He, He did not want his disciples to think they were seeing a mirage. He did not want them to think they were seeing a phantom. He did not want them to think that they, they were being fooled in any way. He wanted them to know, over the course of 40 days, that he truly was alive. Here are some of the ways that the Bible, including Acts chapter 1, tells us that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead. He made multiple visits. As you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the end of those Gospels, he made multiple visits. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that at one time he appeared to over 500 different people. I wonder if they were socially distanced. Okay, that was a bad joke. I'll hear about that later at home. We can't even think about 500 people right now. But Jesus appeared to a crowd larger than would uh, seat in this first floor of the auditorium, and he appeared to them at one time. The resurrected Jesus did that. So there were over 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Doubters were convinced. We all know the story of Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas because of that experience. And Thomas was convinced that Jesus was alive. His doubt was not short-lived. It was not momentary. It lasted for over a week. There are two more proofs about Jesus' resurrection that I think are convincing. And they have to do with the truth and a lie. The guards who were stationed at Jesus' tomb know what happened. And they came back and they told the religious leaders what actually did happen. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They told the religious leaders what happened, and the religious leaders didn't deny what happened. In fact, they were planning for this. That's why the guard was there in the first place. And the religious leaders said, we're going to pay you money, and here's what you're going to tell people. You're going to tell people the disciples came, and they, they overcame you. Fishermen beat up Roman soldiers, and they stole the body of Jesus. That's the story you're going to tell, and we're going to pay you for it. What do you have to pay people to do? Lie. You pay people to lie. The religious leaders knew Jesus was risen. And the final proof that we'll think about this morning is the fact that all of the disciples except John died proclaiming that Jesus was risen. Chuck Colson, who was a part of the the Nixon administration and part of the Watergate cover-up, rightly pointed out from his own personal experience that you cannot get a dozen people to consistently tell a lie. There were less than that who were part of the Watergate conspiracy. And one after another, they started to fold when their own freedom and their own livelihoods got put in jeopardy. People do not die for a lie that they know firsthand to be a lie. People are bent on self-protection. 
And the only reason John didn't die as a martyr proclaiming Jesus is because God allowed him to die in old age. He suffered many other things. Church history tells us he was dipped in boiling oil and survived. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. He suffered for proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. There is proof to our faith. There are facts that undergird Christianity. But we're pointed to this little note here in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus presented himself alive by many proofs. Perhaps you come here today and you're wanting proof of the resurrection. That's very possible. It's very possible. And as we think about people wanting proof, we need to remember that Jesus did not push Thomas away when he had doubts. But Jesus actually pulled him close, came to him, and said, Thomas, here's the proof. So for those among us who may be doubting, for those among us who may be seeking answers, maybe you're a teenager and you've grown up with this and this is all you've heard all your life and you wonder, is this true? Jesus does not push you away. Maybe you're an adult who's hit a crisis in life that has shaken your faith. And you're just not sure about either all of this Christianity thing or a part of it. Go ahead like Thomas and ask the hard questions. Look for proof and then listen when the scriptures give it to you. Listen because God has answers for the doubters. God has answers for the confused. God has answers for the afraid. And as we come into this preparation for the advance of the church, God wants his people to be utterly convinced that he is alive and he is worth proclaiming. This resurrected Jesus gives the Spirit, and how does he give it? He says in verse 5 that he will baptize them with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. A month and ten days after his resurrection, he says in just a few days, Not many days from now, I'm going to baptize you with the Spirit. This is amazing to think about. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that is symbolized or pictured or prototyped in the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of other people. Baptism means what? Well, it it means it's described in, in the ancient language as dying fabric or washing hands. It is a, is a covering. And so when we baptize, we believe that we place the whole person into water and bring them up. And this is the way that we are given the Holy Spirit. We are dyed, D-Y-E-D. We are dyed with the Holy Spirit. And when you dye something, that coloration doesn't just hit the surface, but it goes down into all the seams and into the fabric, and it works its way into the weaves so that it, it, it inhabits the whole thing. And this is how God is wanting to give to us the Holy Spirit. So He reaches down into every nook and cranny of our lives. Where he has control and where he has influence and where he, he, he finds no uncharted territory for Jesus not to be king. In John 16, 7, unfortunately I didn't get this in the slides. 
John 16, 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is amazing to think about, that it is more advantageous for you and me to have the Holy Spirit in us than for us to be with Jesus on this earth. The helper is more advantageous, Jesus said. And when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, we are coming into this transition part where where Jesus is beginning to form and build the church and the coming of the Spirit is an event that takes place after their conversion, whereas for us today, the Holy Spirit comes to us at conversion. We are baptized, according to the book of 1 Corinthians, with the Spirit when we put our faith in Christ. And so we get to share in something that the disciples themselves came to share in. We get to share in it, though, immediately upon conversion. And this Spirit comes from the resurrected Jesus. This Spirit next comes for the believer's witness. And we read this in verses 6-11. through 11. Why does Jesus send the Spirit? So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things... They were looking on, and he was lifted up, and a cloud took them out, took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing in heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who is taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the complete account of the ascension. It's the only one. In the Bible, Luke makes a brief reference to it in his gospel, but here we have the ascension as it took place. And these are Jesus' last words, the final instructions. The disciples are certainly keen, and they're certainly tuned in to what he has to say. They're interacting with him, and they ask him, really, a pretty good question. Verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They ask this question not out of selfishness, and they don't ask this question uh, out of, of ignorance. They ask this question because as they read the Old Testament, they knew that the coming of the Messiah was going to result in this reunifying of the nation of Israel. What was difficult for them to understand and what was revealed as we read the New Testament letters is that there are phases There are gaps in the prophecies. There is a time frame, even as Jesus said. There are times and seasons the Father has fixed by His own authority. And so, when they said, is it time to save Israel now? Jesus said, it is time to save the world. God's next big thing was bigger than Israel. The Psalms tell us that God has been focused on the nations for millennia. And and when they said, is it time to save Israel? Jesus said, no, 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 it's time.
what we want to see saved in 2020. I love the United States of America. I've got hats with the U.S. flag on them. I've got patriotic t-shirts. An American flag is flying outside the house as it does from Memorial Day to Veterans Day for almost 20 years. But better than the American Republic is the kingdom of Jesus. And you and I have a command from King Jesus to be a witness of his life, death, and resurrection to save more than America, to save the world. Politics is difficult for us to escape in the 21st century here, and for the next three months it's going to be impossible for us to escape politics. But I want us to think about a few questions. What animates you more? Politicians saving America or Jesus saving souls? What gets more of your energy, the republic or the kingdom? Of whom do you speak more? Your candidate or your king? I've been to Washington. I've worked in D.C. I've walked the marble halls. Government is necessary. An American government, as corrupt as it might be, is really exceptional compared to the rest of the world. I'm not dissing America. I do believe God has shed His grace on us. But Jesus is better. And being His ambassador is both more important and it is more fulfilling. So yes, work for a better America, but work harder for the better kingdom. Speak up for the candidate of your choice. They might win in November, but speak up louder and more often for the king because he will win at the end of time. Follow the news if you must. Spread the good news because you must. Resist the urge to save your country alone and follow Jesus' lead to save the world. Because this is why He sent the Spirit. He sent the Spirit so that we would be witnesses. Witnesses. Back in November of 2005, they put up a billboard 110 feet high, 212 feet wide in Cleveland. Whether you love Him or hate Him, you can't deny the, the, the pop culture relevance and the pop culture power of LeBron James. And the tagline on that huge billboard was, We are witnesses. Those who went to Quicken Loans Arena saw the athletic, athletic ability night in and night out. And Jesus said, It's time to save the world. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit so you can be my witnesses. Jesus didn't send out theologians. Jesus didn't send out scholars. He used them. But he sent out blue-collar people who had the Holy Spirit to talk about the personal experience of repenting of sin, their own sin, and trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus.
we who have put our faith in Christ, we are all witnesses. And Jesus is wanting to use us by the power of the Spirit to save the world. Will you be a part of God's next big thing? Who who are you evangelizing right now? Who are you loving with the gospel right now? Who are you preparing to evangelize? For whom have you been praying that you can have an opportunity to share the gospel? For whom have you been praying that that your life, as imperfect as it is, your life is providing you an opportunity to tell someone else that Jesus loved them, died for them, lives today, and wants to transform them and bring them back to God. You shall be, Jesus said. You shall be my witnesses. I say to you the same words I've been saying to myself for two weeks. This is not a suggestion. This is not supplemental Christianity. This is His command. To us. It is good for us to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts right now and either affirm us or activate us. And here's the good news this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He will come back. Will you finish the assignment that He's given you? He's coming back, so be confident in telling others about Him. He's coming back. He's as good as His Word. So share it. He's coming back, and He will make all things right by making all things new. So let's obey, and let's evangelize. We prepare the disciples, excuse me, prepared by staying for the Spirit. And then they prepared by staying true to Jesus. They prepared by staying true to Jesus. We read verses 12 down through verse 14. Then they returned Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, about a half mile roughly. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. They prepared by staying true to Jesus and they are true by Jesus' power. I did something that was not the right thing to do, but I did it on purpose. In verse 13, I read over all those disciples' names really fast. Like, yeah, okay, we got the idea. that There's, there's this group there. There's, there's all the disciples. But why are they named, every single one of them, by name? 
They're named every single one by name because you know that, first of all, there's a name missing, right? Who's not with them? Judas is not with them. But after the events of the last 40 days, the fact that 11 of 12 are still there means that not a single apostle except Judas was lost. And this is just as Jesus said, and it's just as Jesus prayed. Look at John 17, 12. Jesus prayed this to his Father after the Last Supper, where he instituted the Lord's Supper. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. We read 11 names here. We read Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Because when he was arrested, they all ran away. When he was on the cross, it looks like only one of them was there. But the resurrected Jesus has the loyalty and the affection of them all. Not because they were incredibly courageous, but because Jesus was given them and he gave them to the Father. They all gathered together in this upper room because Jesus guarded them and not one of them is lost. And my friends, whatever horrific circumstances you and I may go through, as we cling to Jesus, He clings tighter to us. We sing the song, He will hold me fast. And these verses in Acts chapter 1 are evidence that He's been holding people fast who ran away. He's been holding people fast who denied Him. He's been holding people fast who doubted Him. Not those who betray, but those who are momentarily weak. Those whose hearts are with Him in their weakest moments, He will hold fast. If you fear that your faith will fail, these 11 apostles are a reminder that Christ will hold you fast. True by Jesus' power, true by trusting His direction. We go down to verse 21, and the reason they were gathered together, it says, uh, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Jesus went out among us, beginning from the day of the baptism of John until now, when He was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to His resurrection. That's kind of a long sentence to get to the point. They're gathered together, and while they're gathered together, they say, we need someone to replace Judas to be a witness to the resurrection. And they put forward two people, Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, 
Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Be true to Jesus. Be true by trusting his direction. Stay and be true. We have here an apostle uh, selection, and it is, it is transitional. Uh, like we talked about last week, so much of the book of Acts is kind of like that kitchen remodel. You take the refrigerator out, you put it in the living room, the microwave is set up in the dining room on a makeshift table there, and you're cooking meals in a strange way, and life is still going on, but it's a little different. Same thing with the book of Acts, and so choosing another apostle is something for Acts, it's not something for today. Even the idea of choosing an apostle by lots is not something that was done uh, later on. The church, choosing church leadership by lots is not something that was done later on. It is part of this transition phase. So to say, they, they stuck these guys in a microwave and pulled one out and found out which one was done. That's not how we do it today. But the fact of the matter is that in this whole thing, there is still this Godward focus. They, they want someone who's qualified. They want someone who's been with Jesus from the beginning and is a witness to the resurrection. So they've got these two men, and, and before they make the decision, which is done by casting lots, they, they pray in verse 24. You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Which one of these two should be chosen? They're trusting God and they're doing it through this thing which probably, as Bible scholars tell us, was probably two rocks. One was the Matthias rock and one was the Joseph Barsabbas justice rock. And they put the two rocks into a bag and after praying they reach into the bag and they pull one out and, and those were those casting lots and the lot fell on Matthias. Trusting God in, in this. As they're preparing to be witnesses, they're trusting God. They're true to Him in this way. But I skipped over a section, and I want to end with this this morning. These disciples are true by genuine repentance. In those days, it says in verse 15, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and he said, Brothers, The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And in another place in the Psalms, let another take his office. Peter takes us back to consider Judas. And I want to I want to compare and contrast Peter and Judas as we wrap up. Because as we prepare to evangelize, we are going to do that by being true to Jesus and repentance.
And Peter and Judas give us the contrast in that. We look at the story of Judas and it is tragic. And yet we recognize that in God's mysterious providence, the story of Judas is both known by God, allowed by God, and performed by Judas. So hear these words in John 13. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So many of us in this room at some point in our lives have experienced a betrayal of some sort by friends. We know the sting, we felt the pain. Maybe the years have taken the edge off of that. Maybe the years have made us forget, get over it, deal with it better. But it's only been 40 days since the disciples felt the pain of what Judas did. And Jesus was there to prepare them beforehand. But let's think about Judas's reaction to what he did. Judas does not go and seek forgiveness, but the way the story is told, Jesus, Judas, excuse me, goes out and he he commits suicide. You may think the despair and the grief would substantiate suicide, but despair and grief throughout the Bible are meant to drive us to God. There is another man in this story who is despairing and who is grieving, and that is Peter. Peter hears the rooster crow and his mind immediately goes back to what Jesus foretold about him. Before the rooster crows three times, you'll, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. What does Peter do? Peter is met by the resurrected Christ. And he confesses and he repents. That wonderful story, that wonderful account at the end of the book of John, John chapter 21, where Jesus is in the boat and Jesus, Peter is in the boat and Jesus calls out to him, throw your net on the other side. They've spent all night fishing and they've caught nothing. They throw their net to the other side and in a, providential case of repeated miracle. Once again, Peter throws his net on the other side at Jesus' command, and it is full. Peter jumps out of the boat, swims and runs to the shore to be and worship, be with and worship Jesus. Both men that night insulted Jesus by their actions and their words. Peter repents. Judas is remorseful. As we wrap up, as we think about preparing to be a witness, might we look at this story, and not everything in the book of Acts is repeatable for you and I, but as we look at this, may we, like Peter, be a repentant people, not simply a remorseful people. 2 Corinthians talks about 
a godly sorrow versus a worldly sorrow. A worldly sorrow is a sorrow for messing up my life. A godly sorrow is a sorrow for messing up Jesus' life. A godly sorrow is God-directed. A worldly sorrow is consequence-directed. Do you have a godly sorrow or a worldly sorrow about your sin? If you have a worldly sorrow, you ask the question, how does this affect me? If you have a godly sorrow, you ask, how does this offend God? The disciples are followers of Jesus, and we can ask the question, exactly when were they converted? What we know as followers of Jesus is that Peter and Judas had two different reactions to their sin. Peter had a godly sorrow that led to repentance, and Judas had a worldly sorrow that led to destruction. The way Jesus forgave Peter is not meant to take away from the fact that sin is a huge deal. Sin has always been a huge deal, and so it takes amazing grace to forgive it. But if we ignore grace, we will find ourselves led to tragic results. You know, Judas and Jesus died the same day. You go back to Matthew 27. Jesus and Judas died the same day. On that day, Jesus died for the sins of the world. And on that day, Judas died for his sins. And only one of those deaths atoned for sin. We cannot self-atone. And this is the lie that we've been believing since Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. We think we can do something to make up for our sin. Judas paid the ultimate price for his sin. And the store clerk said, you still have more to pay. Jesus as one perfect God-man laid down his life for humanity. And there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Evangel's veins. And it's good for every sinner who comes to wash their guilty stain. And people, people who self-atone for their sins don't really have a story to tell about Jesus. But people who raise the cup and raise the bread and say, I need Jesus who died for my sins, you have a story to tell. You have a story to tell to the nations. That's what makes witnesses of Jesus. People who are true by repentance. Let's bow and consider God's word for our lives. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we come...
worthily, not perfectly. Remembering your body and your blood, we come in faith and repentance, and yet, Lord, there may be some who've become lax, who've thought about doing better instead of repenting. So God, bring us to a place of relying on Jesus instead of ourselves. Bring us to a godly sorrow. God, prepare us to be witnesses this week. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Musicians will come as we have now for weeks, and uh, they will sing, play, and our ushers will dismiss you as you go. Many churches say you are now entering the mission field. Be a witness because you're true to Jesus.